Forgiveness is not about absolving someone. It is more about transcending the harm suffered. The act of forgiveness is often recommended as a remedy when someone has been wronged. However, the act of forgiveness is anything but easy. Forgiveness does not take away the pain and hurt associated with the wrongdoing. Forgiveness is not about exonerating someone. It's about being able to transcend what has happened. On this episode of Pieces of Us, I talk with Nicole Spence. Nicole is an author of a captivating memoir, Somewhere North of Where I Live. This memoir depicts poverty, neglect, and abuse. It is a survival story about the journey of how Nicole transcended the trauma she had endured. She discusses her memoir, which she began at the age of 15. She takes us through her long, difficult road to forgiveness. Nicole also discusses the writing process and how it became her way of dealing with her traumatic childhood. Stories of yours, stories of men, all we had to share is time and pieces of us, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of Welcome back to another episode of Pieces of Us. Thank you for joining yet again this week. I am speaking with uh, Nicole Spence. I had read, so Nicole Spence is an author from Antigonish, and she had written a, a beautiful memoir. She's a teacher, teacher's assistant in Antigonish. She has five beautiful children. Um, and she lives here in Antigonish with her partner. So after I had recently read Nicole's memoir, I knew right away I had to have her as a guest on the show to talk about her book, to talk about her life. So Nicole, <laughs> hello. <laughs> why don't you, I always tell uh, guests to introduce themselves or how they would like to be introduced. In your version, how would you introduce yourself? I think you did a great job. (laughs) I don't know. I'm many faces, I guess. Um, I, right now, I'm enjoying uh, living a quiet life. Um, I love my job. I love going to work every day. I love working with kids with special needs. I love my husband, uh, of course. (laughs) I have a really good life. And, uh, you know, given... Given how I started, um, I have to say that I've been pretty blessed, you know, with uh, this next half of my life. Philosophically speaking, I guess I have more years behind me than I have ahead of me. And uh, at this point, I'd like to make the most of what I have left. And let's, I guess, start with the years behind you. And so your book is a beautiful book about... Well, childhood trauma, mm-hmm. poverty, about going into foster care, about abuse. And I think the biggest part is overcoming or kind of what led you to here to now. 
as well. So let's, I want to go back to the start of your book. Okay. And you started off with your sister's death Mm -hmm. or murder. And I just wanted to know out of everything, and there's different aspects, because that wasn't the start of when you were two years old and like it wasn't a chronological order it was something Mm -hmm. kind of what was going to happen and you had said that you know this is the day that had changed your life and why was this the specific moment that you wanted to start with actually it's interesting um i had i i wrote the book in bits and pieces over the past 25 years um in 2005 um i became a single mother and for 10 years, I, would, I, would, I was raising my kids on my own and working and raising my kids. And I wrote it in bits and pieces over a 25-year period while I was raising my kids on my own. Because like, I became... I knew that I, the book wasn't going to come out until I finished raising my kids. I don't even know if I mentioned the name of the book yet. So yeah, let's... No, it's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's say somewhere north of where I was. So this is the uh-huh. memoir that I had read. Just... To, so everybody listening knows what book we're talking about. So somewhere north of where it was. And you started this 25 years ago. Yeah, and it actually, and the story I'm about to tell on how I came up with the beginning of the book comes out of a letter that was written by my sister. So I'll digress a little bit. So it was 2009. I had just moved to Antigonish, restarted my life after my divorce, and uh, I, I met, I was dating a man um, who was a writer, and just, I, I found the time. My kids were all in school, I wasn't working yet, I had, I had free time, like as I was on EI, thank goodness. But I would spend my days picking up and writing. In 2009, I, I don't throw anything away, I found a letter written by my sister from May of, two, of 1991. And it kind of brought everything back. And I would start um, spontaneous writing, and, um, and it looked like scribbles on pieces of paper. But it was like, when I felt the urge to write, I had to write it. I was sitting in, I had just found the letter. It brought back a lot of emotions. It was almost like um, the letter was a precursor to my sister's death. The first line of the letter, um, and I'm actually I have it in the car. Um, the it was like a, the airmail, and I know this is in the book. It was like the airmail envelope, and it said the peninsula, and we never knew where Alita was. We never knew when we were going to get a like. There was no internet. It was it was long. You had to pay by the minute for long distance, so we never knew when or where we were going to hear from Alita. And um, the first line of the letter read, uh, I'm writing you from Sault Ste. Marie, somewhere north of where I was in West of You. And prior to that, the book had been called Free Bird. I found it a cliche, but I didn't find, I hadn't been able to find another um, name for the book. But when I read that, I knew this is the name of the book. In that whole time period where I found Alita's letter and I was doing a lot of spontaneous writing and I would carry a notepad with me or loose leaf or whatever, I was sitting in the tall and small cafe on Main Street and it just came to me and it was like a flood of words that, and it never changed for the book either. And I knew 
here I am back in Antigonish, and I'm finding Alita's letter that kind of was a precursor or a, a predictor of what was going to happen to her. And it, I realized the day my sister died was the day my life began. I was 37 at the time. <laughs> and I had been doing a lot of reflecting at that point in my life because I had just had a divorce. Um, I was dealing with all of the emotional issues that go with being a single mom and having to raise my kids on my own and, and the pressures of giving my children the childhood that I didn't have and making sure that this cycle of dysfunction was broken. And so that beginning has always been the beginning of the book. I knew that that's where I wanted it to start. It's interesting because when I was... I always felt like it was the beginning, and when I gave it to my editor, that was the beginning of the reflective chapters, and the beginning of the actual book was the memories, that chapter. And when she saw that, she sent it back to me, and she said, I really feel like this would really go well in the beginning. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> kind of fell into place. It, it yeah. is, because that's where I felt it belonged, because that's what launched it. That's what launched my healing. All of the revisiting all of the trauma of losing my sister and writing the details of what happened in foster care allowed me to reflect, which allowed me to be able to start the write the book in the manner in which it needed to be writing, written. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So here we are, 2019, and the majority of the book um, was put together in the last 10 years. So it's only in the last 10 years that I've been able to do the majority of my healing, you know? And I have to say that my divorce was, not to, to get into all of that, but my divorce was probably the most freeing part of that <laughs> because it allowed me to see what I was capable of. You could do it by yourself, you could. Yeah. Yeah, you're a strong, yeah. powerful, Woman. I didn't feel it at the time. I really didn't. I felt like every day was a struggle. Every day was pressure and pain. And I, f you know, feeling like I was unloved and unworthy of being loved. But it was through a lot of hard work and a lot of reflecting and a lot of inner work that I was able to bring these chapters to fruition. Yeah, no, I just, I found it interesting because yeah. I think most people would start in a chronological order. And I really enjoyed, not enjoyed, but I think too throughout, as you're reading it, you knew even from early on Alita's fate as well. Yeah. And it was almost like the juxtaposition of two girls who experience the same thing. Yeah. But different things happen. I didn't actually write it in chronic, and I struggled. That was a huge struggle for me because my memories would come back, and I would write them down. And in the last, in the last year of writing the book, that's when I had to actually piece everything together. So it wasn't written in chronological order; it was written sporadically, and then you know through the support of my mom, Pauline, 
and my brothers and sisters and anybody else who had any memories of when things happened, it was with all of that help and all of that support that I was able to actually put it all in chronological order. It was, it was a pretty big challenge. <laughs> I guess, and that kind of leads into, um, you had written, somewhere in the mixed up versions lies the truth. And how do you balance being truthful to yourself, being truthful to the story that you want to share, and then the different versions that you're receiving and trying to be respectful to all of your family members and also being respectful to your own self as well. As you're talking, it's, I don't know if it's just me or how blessed I am, but I've had unconditional support from any, everybody in my family. And they had such faith in me and my ability to put the story out that they just gave me the information. like. To me, there was no balancing act. I, they knew I needed the information. They gave me the information. They just, I just have eternal gratitude that they had enough faith in me that they knew that I would do this story justice. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it wasn't really a balancing act at all. So there was no like disagreement or Never. no like Nicole. No. Not once. And that, and I think too that. And I'm, I'm scanning my brain, <laughs> and no, never mm-hmm. once was there ever a disagreement on how I should portray people, because, again, they had unwavering faith, and they still do. They're pretty amazing people. <laughs> my peeps. <laughs> Your peeps. Uh, and, like, talking about that and the bond that you had with your siblings. Yeah. And it was beautiful and it persisted throughout those years and even though your older brothers um, may have come in and out there they were always a force and Alita was always there with you and then even to an extent Junebug was there and in your thought and I'm just going to read a line go ahead <laughs> for the listeners I know you um, and it was for our quote-unquote neglect and carefree lifestyle we were bonded with strength of years of being shuffled from one parent to the next one apartment and dilapidated dwelling to another this bond was the only thing that carried me through that next chapter and you were talking about at that point being taken away and kind of going into kind of moving into a foster care system but I think even that next chapter is even that that full time can you kind of shed light to the listeners that bond or your siblings and just kind of that how it kind of helped you for your survival well in everything the only constant was the fact that we were together Edwin always protected us Edwin had this and he still does he has this incredible insight into human nature and uh, I don't know he had this this duty I guess Um, I've had a lot of conversations with Edwin over the years um, and it's funny because he's the one who was looking after us. I mean, in my teens, I, I idolized Eddie. You know, we had a great relationship in our teens, but Edwin was our protector. You know, he protected us from Barb as best he could. The one time Barb lifted a finger to hurt June, told Edwin to go, go get a stick so she could beat June. June was like two. And Edwin came and he, he came. He said, I was carrying this big, the biggest 
fucking log I could find. And he said Junior shat herself when she saw it, but Barb was like so shocked that she never, she never, she just <laughs> never touched her. So but he knew what he was doing. In that he moment. knew exactly what he yeah. was doing. So in his way, like there was a marmalade, there was a marmalade shack out back. I didn't put this in the book, but there was a marmalade shack out back. We were hungry, okay. And Edwin would go to school, and he told us to stay away from the marmalade shack, and because we respected it, and we did. But we didn't realize that he wanted us to stay away from the marmalade shack so that we would have backup food in case we needed it. There was jars and jars of marmalade. I hate a marmalade, but I was so freaking hungry. I ate a jar of marmalade. And he came home from school, and all the little ones had eaten all the marmalade. And we were terrified that he was going to be mad at us. But he handled, like, he was like seven, eight, maybe? <laughs> mm -hmm. But he handled it well and he wasn't mad he was worried because we'd eaten our backup food <laughs> you know um he just edwin has a deep loyalty to the people he loves and that's never changed in all of the years when dad died he like this is just his character i'm just painting a good picture of his character before dad died um edwin came home to look after him he just knew Dad needed to be with somebody, and Dad was alone in the house. Mom was Mom was working in Amherst at the time. We knew Dad was very sick. Um, he had ALS, but eventually pneumonia took him. Just for the reader's sake, but just to paint a picture again of this is the type of bond that we had because we have this unwavering loyalty, and there's something about tragic circumstances that pulls people together. And I think it's a commonality, whatever tragedy you're going through. You know, tragedy, it's pulled people together. And we lived in a constant state of tragedy and survival. And that's what bonds people together. We were the constant, the fact that we were together in all of that time. Edwin had a bond, or he had a sense of loyalty to my mom, Adele. And... Right, and just for the listeners too, when you talk about mom, there's three important women in your life. They're all um, my mother. <laughs> so they're all of your mother. So yeah. there's your biological mother. Um, Adele. Adele. And then there's your foster mother, Paula. Mm -hmm. And then there's your Pauline, who married your father, who is your mother, who took you in and, and raised, raised you. Us as her own. Yeah. yeah. So just if listeners are listening yeah. and they're trying to connect, because it'll be interchangeable. <laughs> um, my friend Paul used to say, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. <laughs> Yeah. So everybody start taking notes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to cut you off, but I just no, wanted okay. to clarify for listeners. Yeah. But Edwin would look after us because Mom asked him to. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Mom left, when we were taken from, when we were taken, Mom went to Toronto, and the one person that he answered to was gone, so he didn't answer to anybody. Um, he even told me himself that had she said. Uh, Edwin, I need you to look after your sisters a little while longer. He probably wouldn't have caused so much trouble at the Fosters. But at that at that point, at the Fosters, they were almost the enemy. Yeah. Because it wasn't your mom, and he didn't get direction from your mom. He didn't get direction from his, from mom to look after us. Like he said, he he even said to me, if mom had said, I need you to look after your sisters a little longer, he would have he would have made sure we were looked after. But Edwin had his own demons to fend with and uh, but you know what for me um, 
David was well into the heart of seducing me and molesting me and and David is um, my foster mother. your foster father and then Edwin came along because the abuse started just after Christmas Edwin came along in the summer I don't want to give the book away but it was right in the thick of I, I guess you could say brainwashing you know that's what you do when you seduce an 8 year old into having sex with you but that's how unprotected and messed up I felt and then Edwin comes along and there's my protector there's my big brother and I felt a sense of safety just having him there you know he was there he was always getting into trouble and I was always worrying about him but it was a distraction from what I was going through I mean I always worry about everybody it's my it's apparently it's a part of my personality (laughs) Well, and maybe because yeah. I think even Edwin, and it shows in the book that he always cared and played that protector role. Yeah. I think that's yeah, kind of in all of you. And it's interesting, too, because the tops that we've had in the years since then, I always thought Edwin was picking on me. You know, we would all dogpile. I'd, be, I'd end up on the bottom of the, of the wrestling match. And Edwin said to me it was just his way of trying to snap me out of this woeful misery that I was in and he had no other way to um, be able to associate with me but it was his attempt to try to make that connection make that connection Mm. and nobody had any idea what was going on at least about him so he had no idea but he knew just you were not yourself happy he knew Mm -hmm. I wasn't happy but it was me and him and Alita together and all of that and because uh, Eddie was off at the school for the blind June had been adopted out I I can't explain the bond or the connection that we had it's just there mm. you know and when Alita passed it was no coincidence I mean Edwin is terrified of flying pathologically terrified and he flew down with me to Nashville to say goodbye to her and it was no coincidence that it was the three of us that were there. That was not lost on me. I hope Edwin listens to this and I hope he knows how important he is to me. Let's go to your early childhood before you moved into foster care. And it's one of neglect, extreme poverty, a lot of emotional turmoil of kind of parents coming and going and no, no constant, I guess, Mm-hmm. adult in your life however as you read those chapters or as you read the early on it's still filled with happiness and it's still filled with kind of joy and kind of the fun times and um, you even talk about just one house in particular that just kind of was in awe and it was definitely you can feel the child's kind of wonder and it was kind of normalized that well this is just life parents kind of come and go and but you have your siblings and mm-hmm. um can you just describe some of those early memories of just being just with your siblings and my memories are tangible again I didn't put all of the all of the memories in the book but um it's how I've chosen to live my life you know and I work with kids um I've been told by the teachers that I work with that I have a very good understanding of what it is to be a child in an uncertain situation. Kids live 
in the here and now, you know? They don't have the worries that we do as adults. And that's how I lived my childhood and that's how I remember my childhood. It hasn't always been that way. I had to move through a good two decades of every time I thought of my childhood, I only thought of the bad stuff. Again, the past 10 years plays a huge role in how I look at that. You know, through all the healing I've done, the inner work, and the ability to let go of all the harshness, um, I'm able to reflect back and see that my parents, they didn't know any better. Barb didn't know any better. They lived what they knew. I know that bad things happened. I know that all of that was not normal. And I know that from what I've, from talking to other people who've read the book, they're completely shocked. It's shocking, the fact that we lived like that. But that's what I knew. You know, I had no judgment on what was right and what was wrong and what was normal or abnormal. I had no judgment at that age. My judgment came later in my teens and my 20s and, you know, through Was working. there anger in your teens oh, and your 20s from looking back? Fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there was. I, and I said that in the book. I didn't write into those years because that's not what the book is about. Not to say that I didn't go through it. Um, from the time I was 14 to the time I left home at 18, I was suicidal every day. I read, read back through my journals. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was miserable. I was hateful and blaming and angry and lashing out at my dad and lashing out at my mom and nobody understands me and, you know, very self-centered. I mean, I look back now and I realize that the prefrontal cortex hadn't developed at that point in time, so my logical brain thinking couldn't make sense of anything and you've that had happened. Yeah, and you had experienced a lot and going through childhood trauma yeah. and trying to come to terms with everything and yet still developing and you're, yeah. you know, 14, 15, 16. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, I was mad. I was angry. Um, I was resentful. Um, even in my early 20s, I, I was... What helped you get through those years? My kids. I became a mother. I knew. I gave... I had Emma... And my focus was her. And how can you have so much anger and hate when you have somebody who loves you so much depending on you? You know? It just kind of melted away. And then Kobe came along. Oi, that boy. He's the person who can see right into your soul. And then Sam came along and he kept me on my toes. He still does. <laughs> He's the kid I lose sleep over. I lose sleep over all of them now, but... I, I, it is. It was through motherhood. And um, again, be able to reflect back. and Again, divorce. It was liberating for me. Um, I married my husband because he was the first boy who ever showed any interest in me. And I really, at that point, believed that I was so damaged and unlovable that I would never do any better. And how, so how old were you when you married your husband? I met him when I was 17. Fell in love with him instantly. Um, we had Emma when I was 23. We married two years later. And then when I was 33, we separated. And 35, my divorce finally came through. 37, I can't remember. <laughs> it doesn't matter, it's all, it's all there. It all just fell through. It, came, it happened the way it was supposed to. But, but even your teen years. Yeah. And you had said you, know, you were suicidal and yeah. you 
suffered with mental health issues like and I self I self uh, self harm I cut mm-hmm. I would cut um, I didn't have counseling after we left foster care um, I went through a I think a eight week group session maybe when I was fourteen where you dredge up everything and you talk about how you feel and there was three other girls in the group who had gone through similar experiences not through foster care but they had all been sexually abused um, but that was that was the only counseling I had um, and I had no words to explain the hatred I felt for myself I had no words to put to the feelings like I, I felt like I didn't belong in my body and I would pull my hair and I would pinch my skin and I would I was just looking for a way to stop the pain. For me, uh, self-mutilating was a tangible, it put, how do I put this? It gave the pain something tangible. It gave it a tangible name. And I would lie in bed and I would pray to God to end my life. Just please take the pain away. Or please, if you just get me through this, I promise, I promise I will never let this happen to my kids. I, I would have I would have these bargaining sessions, and I it was every day was a constant struggle. Looking back, I probably should have been on heavy antidepressants, but this was mid eighties. You didn't know about that stuff back then. It's not as you know open as it is now. Well, and it even amazes me that after you've left child or foster care, you like there was nothing put in place. For you to get counseling and to realize that maybe uh, maybe not right now she's ready for it let's yeah keep checking in with her yeah but, um, but writing my journal actually and and sorry <laughs> no that that's probably what helped me the most I, I spent a year with mom and dad and I was in the middle of running I had no idea what I wanted and I went to my social worker and said can you put me back in foster care so I went back over to PEI for a year in foster care. And I wasn't happy there. So I said, I want to go back with mom and dad. <laughs> and, but my social worker, uh, when I went back to PEI, gave me my very first diary. Isabel Painter, she's passed away, long passed away now, but she gave me my very first diary. And that was the first real outlet I had for working through all the feelings and emotions and thoughts that were going through my head. And then grade eight, I started a journal with a brand new teacher, brand new English teacher. And she gave me the freedom to say what I wanted in whatever manner I wanted and not judge me and not reprimand me for it. And I have probably another novel's worth of journal entries. And if I have to say anything, that's probably what helped me not go completely bonkers is writing is writing and my desire to break this cycle I knew from a very early age that the cycle of dysfunction and alcoholism and abuse would stop with me I couldn't know I couldn't see how it was going to happen but I knew it was going to stop with me with my generation all of my brothers and sisters felt the same way Eddie doesn't have children Edwin doesn't have children he didn't want to perpetuate this cycle. He didn't want to bring in another generation. You know, Alita's passed. 
June did, wasn't as harshly affected as we were because she was always protected. So I'm not sure what her views are on breaking the cycle. Right. But uh, well, because she so was so young when. Yeah, because I can't and I can't really speak to. I can't speak for June, but the ones that I have spoken about. Um, they all wanted to stop it in some sort of way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to to talk about your to talk to your dad, and I know you can't because he has since passed to see his childhood experiences and how that affected him and how he raised his kids and what happened to him and then and those were other stories that we shared we know all of Mm -hmm. that stuff yeah and yeah so and and I can look back you know and I don't know if it's because I'm able to reflect or the way my brain works or the way the perspective in which I'm able to see people's storylines but I'm able to look back and see his childhood and the events leading up to the decisions that he made. I'm able to look back on my mom's childhood. And like we, we've had many, many, many discussions. And uh, I actually recorded a lot of my conversations with her. And I'm able to see that if you're not taught any better, you don't know any better. You know? And I can't hold any of that against them. Is that it? Did yeah, I just no, 100%. Mind? I'm just letting that soak in, to be honest with you, because yeah. I think that's so powerful. Yeah. And it's a conscious, it was a conscious effort, and it's, it, it was a conscious effort to come to that point, because I would look back, and I would blame him, and be angry at him, because he should have, he should have, he should have, and I was angry over the things that should have happened, but they didn't happen the way they did, they should have happened. So, the chapter, there's a chapter, okay. and I use the quote-unquote the welfare roundup. Damn. <laughs> you like that? That would have been a really good name. <laughs> um, and it, just because that's the way you describe it, that's the way I, I just found felt like a roundup of children. It was gut-wrenching. And I could feel the terror in these kids, in you guys, about what was happening. Of you don't know what's happening, but you also don't want to be taken. And Oh, we know what was happening. Yes. We knew. And you knew that you wanted to run, and you knew you wanted to get away, and you knew you did not want to be taken by them. Well, they were the cops. They were the bad guys. mm Mm-hmm. They were, yeah, you were against, (laughs) they were not going to be a good ending, basically. And towards the end of this experience, you kind of discussed that voice, that you felt all of these adults were making these decisions, and here you were, voiceless and not even able to communicate what you wanted or make any decisions for yourself. And I guess I, my question here, my roundabout way of asking that is, how do you feel that experience could have been different? Instead of just coming in, like how, in your case, how can you allow that child to find their voice in that horrible situation? That was that struggle I had for years. Things should have been. They should have done this. They should have done that. But I now I've come to the conclusion that I can't live in the should have. The only thing I can do right now is use what I know to help other people. You know? And take from my experience of have, being a voiceless child. Because I work with kids. I work with vulnerable children. All kids are vulnerable. I take from my experience to try to 
make me a better adult. I always take a step back and observe. And I'm hyper aware that things that I say and do can really affect a child's life. You know, um, I may not see it directly right now, but I know that in the long run, um, they will look back and remember something that I've said or not said, more, more or less what I've said. There's nothing they could have done. Um, if I could give advice to them, they should have listened to us. They should have sat with us and listened to us. Just a few moments to explain to us what was going on. Like Eddie and Edwin were the ones who told us mom's an alcoholic and can't look after us anymore. Kids are a lot more resilient than adults think, you know, and they're a lot more perceptive. And it doesn't take much to give them reassurance, you know? And to shelter from their perspective, maybe they didn't want to share that information or whatever because they wanted to protect. Yeah. But this idea of sheltering children to protect them it almost destroys them because <laughs> kids need truth to be able to figure out yeah. what is happening to them. Yeah. And there is a gentle way to communicate that. There is. Yeah. And there is a way to communicate with children that allows them to be able to process what's happening. You know, a couple of years ago, the wildfires in Alberta, um, Fort Mac, it was at Fort Mac. Um, I was working with a student. I was working in a grade one class. Actually, this just popped into my head. And uh, this little girl, actually it was about four years ago, this little girl came into our class and she was terrified. She had had to leave her home. Her dad was back in Fort Mac. She was worried about him, she was terrified. There was a few times where she just wanted to talk about how she was scared, that um, she didn't know if her dad was okay, and she didn't know if her house was okay, and she wanted to go back to her house. And my response to her was, I bet you really miss it, don't you? You know, yeah. You know, if you're able to validate to children what they're feeling and what they're going through at that moment, just take a minute. We're so busy as adults in our lives that we don't take the 30 seconds or five minutes to allow children to voice what's going on, you know? But if we stop and slow down for just a few minutes and just let them talk, because that's the moment they're in right now. Because in five minutes time, she's gonna go off and play with her friends. But for five minutes, she was safe enough to be able to talk about how she felt. And I don't feel like they gave us the five minutes that we needed. They distracted us with ice cream. They were so proud of themselves. And this, this was my perspective. I've since talked to Mary Beth. Um, I adore Mary Beth. The year that we were taken was her first year as a social worker, if I'm not mistaken. I remember her telling me at one point that she was so happy that she had found a good foster home for us. And as far as what they should have done, I should have just taken a few extra minutes and let us say, hey, we don't want to go. 
I understand you don't want to go, but right now, this is what you have to do. You know, and that's okay. It's okay to say that to a child. I understand that you're scared. I understand that you don't want to go, but right now, we have to do this. But none of that was said to us. You know, we just went where we were told. And I guess that even, um, and I'm just making the connection now and let me know if I'm offside by any means, but not having that voice and for any child and parents are dictating or adults or whatever and you're just kind of getting shuffled through, then when abuse and any type of abuse um, the child doesn't realize or know that there is a voice that they can to go and share and to seek help because up to that point no parent, nobody's listening to them and especially when the person who you trust who's seducing you is saying to you you can't tell anybody this is a little secret you know why would I question that my life had been dictated by adults who thought they knew better. So let's talk, and I know, uh, and you've mentioned in the memoir, mm-hmm. this isn't a story about abuse. It's just part. It is. It's, it's just, just part, part of the story. Of the story. Yeah. And this is more about just your childhood as a whole and the different yeah. things. It's definitely not, not a story about abuse, but when you describe... The specific point where you describe the rape with your foster, with David, you change point of views. And you, not point of views, but you change, it's a letter, and it's a letter to David. And I just want to, why did you decide to do it this way, as opposed to continuing the story from the way it was being told? You kind of took a step back and did... It was the only way I was able to write it. Like... I remember when I was writing it, I was like, how dare you do this to me, you son of a bitch. And I was angry, and I was empowered. And, like, I had forgiven him years ago. I I forgave him um, when I was 25. Emma was two. But I didn't forgive him for him. I forgave him for me because it was something I needed to do to get on with my life. Um, That doesn't negate emotions. That doesn't negate how I felt. That doesn't negate the fact that I was raped. It just, when I forgave him, it allowed me to be able to start to work through that. Writing that letter, it was like punching him in the face. (laughs) Right, and I I think too, people confuse that idea of forgiveness with, like, forgiveness equating, it's okay. Yeah. Or like, don't worry about it, it's all good. Yeah. Whereas, that's not the case at all, it's what you said so there's this ability to be like fuck you (laughs) let's that's exactly it go toe to toe yeah there's a process in forgiveness and uh, a friend of mine who's also been through a lot of what I've been through um, we talk about it it's called excavating had I not been able to write that so explicitly and excavate the hell out of that memory and dredge it up I wouldn't have been able to heal from it. You know, I wouldn't be able to sit here and talk so openly about it. Uh, it bothers me not one iota to talk about the details of what happened because I've reached a point in my life where it's just a story. You know, 
and it's it's a point that I've worked very 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 hard to get to. You know, it's a lot of work. Um, I still deal with some trauma. Um, I'm seeing a trauma therapist, um, just not from the abuse, but from just different different things like a feeling of helplessness when the police come to our door and break our family apart, that kind of stuff. I was able to deal with the big trauma stuff and I've actually reached a point because I've done so much work where I'm able to recognize where my trauma is triggered. I'm able to go to my trauma therapist and say, look, my trauma was triggered, can we work through this? And wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, logosynthesis. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> but, and it, no, it's, I know I make it sound easy. It's not, it's, it's through a lot of really hard work and writing chapters like Later a Letter, writing cha chapters like The Cold Hard Counter, uh, reliving that. Um, facing it head-on and facing it head-on again and again and again until eventually I can talk about it without being triggered and without feeling the emotion behind it. A lot of people have come out to me since reading the book that this happened to me or this happened to a friend of mine or a lot. I think one in three people have been sexually abused. That's the average. It's a statistical average, but I'm not surprised. By sharing that story, yeah, people are able to find a safe space in you to confide in yeah. what happened to them. But it's still scary as hell, you know, because it. I'm I'm gonna be 47 in a couple of months. This ended 36 years ago, but I'm still working through it, you know, and. I, I, it's only through facing those memories head on that you're able to bring it to the light and allow healing to happen. Because if you bury it, it's not gonna happen. You know, and it's scary, but there's enough knowledge and there's enough resources and there's enough people out there to give you a safe space to share that you can take step by step by step and face what's happened and stop reliving those patterns of trauma that were perpetuated by whatever abuse, whether it be neglect, starvation, sexual, emotional, physical. Like there is a method to get past that, but you have to be able, for me, you have to be able to face what happened and in writing later letter that that was so painful I went into PTSD after I wrote that I had severe PTSD um, I put the book away for two years I had to work for two years with a trauma therapist before I could even revisit the book and then when I did I finished it in a year but yeah it's scary but you're not gonna die from it you feel like you're gonna die talking about it reliving it um, reliving the shame. Shame shame is something nobody talks about, you know? Because here you are with this person who you may or may not trust, who's doing these things to you, who's brainwashing you, and you like spending time with this person, and you like how it makes you feel, but then you know it's not right, but you're a child, so you kind of have, you have no voice, all of that happens, and when it stops, it's years later that you have to deal with all of that. And for years, I thought it was my fault. I blamed myself for a lot of stuff. 
and you kept saying I sorry go ahead like you kept saying sorry to people like when you were writing it and when it was coming out yeah that you had to or you started to tell people or kind of people found out you would apologize and is that part of that shame yeah because I asked him for it you know and now I'm 47 years old I look back and I was like I see that he brainwashed me I see that he um yeah, I just, God, it was fucked up, man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but. And that and that's a case with a lot of, when you read or just, it's, I remember for, like even yeah. watching Oprah and yeah. victims of child abuse always say that. They, you, mm-hmm. You're brainwashed. You're seduced. They know how to seduce you yeah. and kind of yeah. trap you into that. Because I look back and I think, and I, and I don't want to say only, but I remember after it happened, it happened over the course of three years. And I think it only happened maybe nine times. Only? Does, I know that sounds yeah, weird, I but I, like, I can count on two hands how many times he actually did anything to me. But it was the complete, <laughs> sorry, mind fuck. Yeah, it's that's when you have to deal with years later. Yeah, you know, and then yeah, and like it's just I want people to be able to start that dialogue. That yes, I felt shame. I asked for it. I felt shame. You know, if if this if this book does nothing else, there's gonna be people who are gonna disagree with me. Gonna be people that this is gonna trigger. I don't know. I, I have no control over what people are going to take from it. But Let's start the dialogue. <laughs> nothing else, it's going to start the dialogue. Mm-hmm. This whole Me Too movement. I was, I, I'm, not, I'm not really a, a person who joins movements, but you have to start talking about it. And I, and I know just I'm frustrated when people compl- complain or the negative, um, and they say, well, how can it come out? years later like why didn't they say something at the time and it's just like well it's it's part of trauma and it's part of you have to process it and experience it and depending on how old you were and what situation you're in it doesn't matter it just the abuse happens yeah and a lot of times it's you bury it down and then it's not until you bring it up or or even realizing I think even sometimes abuse happens and it's not until years later that you look back and go Oh fuck! Like yeah, that was abuse, but you don't realize it until you're yeah. an adult. Yeah, and it's that whole air of secrecy behind it too, you know. And it's not just the shame from the abuse; it was the shame from the type of life that I led. We were poor, dirt poor, you know. And I was ashamed of the fact later uh, that we didn't have proper footwear, that all my clothes were secondhand. So shame is, and I never ever asked for anything that I wanted. Partly because when I did ask for something that I wanted, I got sexually abused. I learned that that leads to shame. So I never ever asked. I never wanted anything because I always felt I didn't deserve it because I had asked for what I wanted and look what happened. So I must deserve bad things to happen to me. You know, and that's part of the psychological repercussions (laughs) of living through sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. the, the shame and stigma of being taken into foster care. I was the only foster kid I knew, my sister and I. Like, 
it was shameful for us to not be living with our parents. There's always this air of secrecy that comes with shame and comes with whatever type of abuse that you're suffering from. It's messed up. And it's still happening nowadays. And to go, um, David's wife, um, Paula, mm -hmm. one of your mothers, she found out early on mm -hmm. and talked to you, snuck you out of bed. Is this happening? You guys had a candid conversation mm -hmm. and then said, if, you know, if it happens again, you know, let me know. And as an adult, you can think like, oh yeah, if that makes sense, if it happens again, we'll figure it out and whatever. Mm -hmm. But again, to put that onus on like how you were eight, eight years old at the time, yeah. like again, oh, let me know when it happens, but I'm a child, but nobody cares about my voice and how do I speak out? And mm -hmm. again, that he psychological warfare and... Yeah, he threatened me too, actually. He told me I, because like, you know, he brainwashed me. Um, I, he had a lot of power over me, but he threatened, he threatened me if, if I told Paula again. And then when the threats didn't work, he would bribe me. But if, if I can clarify for anybody who has read the book, because um, there's been discussions, heated discussions I've had that Paula should have known better. She should have said something. She should have done something. You have to look in the context. It was 1981. She didn't know what she saw. You know, um, and we had a long conversation when I was 25. It was around the weekend, the, the time that I forgave David. And she said to me, I, I want you to know I didn't realize exactly how bad it was. She thought, I thought it was just touchy-feely. And David was such a manipulator. I mean, you have to think, she married at a high school. She graduated, they married that summer. She had kids immediately. She was very young and very, you know, and David was a big man. Paula, Paula was tiny like me. And he was really good at manipulating her. He was really good at manipulating me and manipulating people he wanted. And I don't know what he said to her, but the impression she got was touchy-feely and I was just a curious child, you know? And at that time, there's not a lot of information about None. sexual abuse. Nobody talked about None. it. There were no reports. No. You could not go see documentaries. You talked about that one documentary that was on Live at Five, yeah. that segment yeah. that you really wanted to watch um, and the power of like speaking out and yeah. um, how the perpetrator always says, don't tell anybody or the secrets. Yeah. Um, but that there was there's not a whole bunch of that at that time. There wasn't no. So yeah, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, and everybody was shocked when it came out. Everybody, and um, believe it or not, my dad was the only time person I could actually talk about it with. Nothing was known about it, and everybody was shocked. Um, Edwin only found out when I was fifteen. He had gone to mom at one point in time, and he said, "What's David Foster's address?" And mom was like, what the fuck do you want to watch? Write to him for, are you crazy? He's like, well, everybody's shitting on him, you know, I don't understand. She's like, what? After what he did to that little girl? I thought Edwin knew. That's how Edwin found out he did. Edwin lived with us, he had no idea. Dad would come and visit, and or, or drop us off for the visits, and him and Dave would go out to the shed and talk about tools. Dave was a good guy. Dave was a good guy, yeah. Like, after we were taken, I was 
scared of men, terrified. I couldn't be within 10 feet of a man. I could not be left in the same room alone as any man, except my dad. He didn't make me feel ashamed. I, I don't know what it was about him that made me feel safe, but it took me, I think, two years to be able to be comfortable in the same room as a man alone. I, if my gym teacher was a man, I was always very self-conscious. I would have to wear a big sweater, like I, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, I was terrified of men after that because I thought every man wanted to touch me or hurt me. You know, that's something else that they don't talk, tell you about or talk about. <laughs> Which is you know? important to talk about. I want to I wanna talk about your mothers, uh, Paula, and then we'll talk about Pauline. And as you move into the foster care, Paula is really your first, like, positive, loving, and I think the word is consistent, adult in mm -hmm. your life. And from your perspective, um, what was Paula able to give you at that moment um, from eight years to 11 years or the time you spent with Paula? What was she able to give you or teach you at that time that other adults just weren't able to? <laughs> Everything. She was happy. I'd never known a happy woman before. She was happy. You know? She was normal. She was happy to make us supper. Um, she made, she baked us brownies. Um, she was beautiful. Just beautiful. You know, and she still is. Like she, right now, I think she's 67. You know, going on 23. That's her personality. That's what she was able to give me. She was caring and loving and um, put boundaries. She grounded me when I needed to be grounded, you know? Because I had lo such a low self-esteem, I believe that whenever she grounded me, she didn't love me. But that wasn't a reflection of her. That was a reflection of me, <laughs> you know? But, um, yeah, if I have to say anything, she's happy. She fa always finds the positive. She's funny. Um, we had a pet raccoon digger. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And she would... Oh shit, I shouldn't be saying this. Papa liked wine. <laughs> Digger got into the wine. <laughs> and she, like, she never got mad. She never got angry. She was never angry. I don't ever remember Paula being angry. That's what she was able to give me. You know, she. And do you feel like you were able to carry that? Oh my god, yeah. yes. Right now, if I had to say I'm like any, my personality is like any of my mother's, it would be Paula. You know, just funny sense of humor. Um, we feel very deeply and we love very deeply, but we're able to live life with a light heart and take the joy out of life and just live it with joy and find the joy in every moment. So let's go to Pauline. And Pauline is a woman who she married your father and she saw what was happening saw her partner's children in the foster care system and just knew they needed to be with her and protected and loved and you know raised as one of her own and that's exactly what she did and she did. you said in the book if it wasn't for her you probably would never have been back with your father no. and 
kind of reunited in the same in the same fashion um so I guess kind of what did Pauline give you in your life family mom was a warrior (laughs) she gave me my sense of family she has a big family my aunts and uncles Christmas traditions um family vacations she she was a warrior she fought and without fighting does that make sense she was a fighter and in the fact that she always found a way around an obstacle you know giving up was never an option for her like I get my work ethic from her um my ability to jug 6,000 things at once from her. (laughs) Um, That's what she was able to give me. Um, The family that we have, it's all extended family, half-brothers, half-sisters, cousins, step-brothers, step-aunts and uncles. And like when my sister, my sister Megan and I did her eulogy, we each did her own eulogy, sorry. And it was like, she said it best. For mom, there was no fences. There was just family all around. She defined my sense of family. For me, family is here. I'm pointing to my heart, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my ability to tell a good story. Um, My fearlessness in being able to tell a story. My ability to look at different people's stories with non-judgment. She gave me all of that. I had a really great family. And she really encouraged you to keep pushing through. She did. keep doing this, uh, pushing through writing the story. She Getting did. the story out. Every time I wrote a little bit of it, I would send it to her. And she would give me feedback. And she would tell me how proud she was of me. She was a fighter and taught me never to give up. And once I put my mind some, to something, I could accomplish it. And, you know, thanks to my mom, I really believe that there's literally nothing that I can't accomplish. And let's talk. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, and let's talk. I really miss her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. And it's fresh and from the book and I mean I don't know her but I know from the book and I just admired her her I don't even know the word of just she did not care she was getting those kids those I say it as if they're characters in a book but she was getting you guys back Mm -hmm. and it was no questions asked and and even when you said the no fences it's just she raised everybody as you're my child and there's yeah you know even though there was no question about it Mm mm-hmm and never made you feel like a stepchild. Oh, there was times in my teens where I felt that way, but that again, that was a reflection of me, not her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's talk about your biological mother. <laughs> your three moms. Let's go there. <laughs> Bring it. Um, <laughs> and she had her her own issues. She was an alcoholic, uh, which hindered her ability to raise her kids. But did she come back into your life afterwards? Periodically, throughout the years. Mom and I are still working through our issues. You know, um, I won't go into detail. If there's one thing, one influence I have to say that 
mom's had on me is the power to forgive. You know, and the capacity for compassion for another human being that's suffering. And did she have that herself? Or was she did. She's very loving. She's very into her faith. My wish for my mom is that she be free from suffering and that she has peace of mind in this lifetime. But she has taught me the capacity to forgive. And I've learned how big my capacity for compassion is through my mom. And let's talk about that forgiveness because that's the whole, um, the beautiful thing. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to think about because, and you had alluded to it earlier because it's that sense of, well, it's okay. Um, and forgiveness isn't necessarily saying like, well, it's okay of what happened, but it's coming to terms with everything and being able to move on. Are, can you describe your road to forgiveness? There's a conversation you have with Alita and Alita was talking to David and you had written it down uh-huh. and it's about um, that he had apologized or that he was sorry and you you had a line of just you felt something in you and then that this was kind of the start of forgiveness and that it wasn't just because he said sorry that it was all magical and everything was fluffy. Yeah, it's it's a, the what you're referring to is a journal entry. Um, journaling again, like I stated before, was one of my ways to cope. I guess that's a gift Alita gave me. You know, I'm just looking at the entry right now. Is that she through that conversation she planted a seed. Like I never considered even the possibility of forgiving him for what he had done. I'll just read this. It's a I say I was in shock. All these years I had dreams that David would come and kill me and now I don't have to dream them anymore. I really didn't care that he cared. All I knew was hate. I don't know whether to believe him or not. This is really confusing. Part of me says he's sincere and that he's sorry but another part of me says he's just saying it. How can I forgive him for what he did? I certainly can't forget it. The goodness says that even if the worst criminals can change for the better. Boy is this confusing. I told Leet to tell David Merry Christmas, and that I'm not a little girl anymore. I don't know why I told her that. Maybe the goodness in me will prevail after all. I really don't know. Here's Nicole. That's where the process of forgiveness starts. It starts with a seed. It starts with entertaining the thought that you're actually willing to forgive. And then once you decide that what forgiveness means to you and what benefits it's going to do to you, do for you. You can start the process of forgiveness. What somebody else does has nothing to do with you. What he did, my mom being an alcoholic, making the decisions she made, my dad going off and screwing a 14 year old, (laughs) None of that has anything to do, it impacted me as a child and it impacts you and your relationship. If you are in a relationship or if you know somebody like that, it's going to impact you. But what that person does has nothing to do with you. 
what David did to me was a completely reflection of how fucked up he was, you know, and how sick he was. And it was a reflection of the pain and anguish that he was going through. My mom's alcoholism had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with the pain that she felt at losing her child and the years of abuse that she had endured prior to me coming into her life. And when you're able to recognize that what somebody else says and does has nothing to do with you and have empathy for the suffering of somebody else, that's a reflection of your capacity for compassion. And when you have compassion for the suffering of others, then you can forgive. Yeah, no, sorry. I feel like I keep taking that moment, but I think that compassion, that's, that's beautiful. And that's because I think people root their forgiveness in. They hinge it on what other people do. Mm -hmm. How can it not benefit you to feel compassion for the suffering of others? Compassion has a ripple effect throughout all of humanity. You know, in all of my videos, I end it with namaste. All of my writing, I end it with namaste. We are one. And everything we do has an impact. Negative, positive, it's all perspective. So someone who is struggling with something from their past, um, either a child, somebody who faced sexual abuse, any childhood trauma for that matter, neglect, um, emotional abuse, what advice would you have for them? Either to come to terms with forgiveness or just even in their early phases of trying to come to terms? Feel what you're going to feel. Nothing you feel is wrong. If you feel anger, if you feel gratitude, sadness, despair, love, we're constantly in a flux of emotions every single day of our life. There, And I don't know if you we're recording when I said this earlier, but the only constant is the constant fluctuation. We're constantly in flux. Allow yourself to feel what you're going to feel. Refrain from self-judgment. There's nothing wrong with feeling anger. However, do not use that as a torch to hurt someone else. Because that continues the cycle. It does. You're not responsible for how I feel. I'm responsible for how I feel. You don't make me feel away. You can't make me feel happiness or joy or sadness or anger. I'm responsible for what I do with those emotions. If you're gonna break the cycle, if there is a cycle, or if you're not going to start a cycle, <laughs> it's important to recognize that. You have 100% control over what you do with the emotions that you're feeling. Don't use it to perpetuate hurting others. It's something I constantly live with every day. You know, somebody's going to say something I don't like. Um, my mom still pisses me off on occasion. <laughs> and I think we can even see that with Barb. Yeah that you can look at it and say, you know, she's a victim herself of what, what yeah. had happened and yeah. she was only a child, um, you know, when your father yeah. uh, was with her. But yet 
she used the trauma that she had experienced and perpetuated the hate and the violence. The best thing to do, and you know what? (laughs) If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. You know, I went through years. um, My... I would make emotional decisions based on my emotions, major life decisions based on emotions. And I would say things I would regret. And I started to recognize that my response to what somebody else said or did was a reflection of me, not them. And I would say something and I would immediately regret it because once it's out there, once you do something, you can't take it back. When you start to work with that, then you can start to work with compassion. You start with yourself. Compassion for self. Pema Chodron talks about holding yourself in a cradle of loving kindness. I mean, it's all cyclical. We could talk for hours about it again. (laughs) (laughs) You asked me about forgiveness, my process of forgiveness. There's a lot of tools that you have to put into play. And a lot of it has to do with recognizing where you yourself need to heal. You know? And taking responsibility for your actions, your words, and what you're going to do with what life has given you. For me, I'm very, very mindful of what I say. And oftentimes, if I'm silent, it's because I'm processing what is the most loving way I can respond to this situation. You've written this book. Yeah. Uh, Somewhere north of where I was. Somewhere north of where I was. And you said you were 15 when you started writing this. Yeah. Um, and it took you 25 years to get it out. What do you hope happens with this book? I want it to change the world. In what way? However it can most benefit people. I want the dialogue to open. I want people to be able to stand up and say, I'm not afraid to talk about it. You know, I want the secrecy to be unshrouded. I want women, men, anybody who's been a victim of anything to have the courage and the warriorship to be able to stand up and say, this happened, but I will not let it rule my life. I will not let it define me. My wish is that everybody could get to the point where I am, where they're at a point in their healing where they're able to tell their story just as a story without the emotional attachment to it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think to tell there's you're not telling the story from a perspective of a victim. You're telling the story from the perspective of someone who survived this. And transcended. And transcended. And I thought that was so beautiful because it's so easy. Not easy. So many people are left in that victim. The victimization. Yeah. You have to make the decision. The onus is on anybody who reads it to make a decision where they want to go. Two weeks ago, somebody very close to me came out and she said, your book gave me the courage to say that this happened to me. She said, do you believe me? I said, of course I do. She made the decision to start that dialogue. She made the decision that she did not want this to rule her life anymore and she's taking those first steps to start to heal and to make a better life for her daughter i'm so proud of her and that's where it starts we just 
You make that decision. Make the dialogue. Make that decision. Start the dialogue. The rest will follow. Well, I'm excited to see what will follow for you. Because <laughs> this, there are few books that really, really, really impact me, um, that have impacted me the way this book has. It, truthfully, like I was honestly blown away when I read this book. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Because your writing style too, <laughs> and I know we didn't even really get to, into that, but just even your writing style and everything, but this is a story that needs to be told, and this is a story that I do believe is going to help so many people. Um, so I hope this allows people to pick up a copy somewhere north of where I was. Um, can you tell us where people can pick up a copy? Uh, I have copies. <laughs> I have about 70 copies left. Anybody local, come to me. <laughs> but um, you can order it um, from Nimbus uh, Publishing. Um, it's in Chapters Indigo. It's on Amazon.ca. Uh, private bookstores. It's pretty much everywhere. Perfect. And I can post, I'll it. post a link on my website. Um, yeah. At piecesofashow.com. Okay. And uh, so if anybody yeah. is interested and they want to access it. Yeah. Uh, I do talks as well. Um, I did a women's empowerment talk a couple of months ago. It was quite powerful. Pardon the <laughs> pun, I guess you could say. But um, yeah, no, I I have no issue standing up and talking about anything and answering any questions that people may have about the book. Um, if they want to book me, <laughs> I do public talks. <laughs> that's where I see myself. You know what? That's where I see this going. Mm. I see I see myself talking to people. I see myself having these conversations with large audiences. So if you're an organization, if you're a school, if you're... I will come in and I will talk to your class, I will talk to your group, whatever you want. Um, contact me. And how do they contact you? Uh, intuitivecloset at gmail.com. Um, you can go to my Facebook page, uh, at Nicole Spence Author. It's, and... Uh, if all else fails, you can contact my publisher, <laughs> Acorn Press. Perfect. And I think this is beautiful. And Nicole, thank you so much for coming here today and sharing a piece of you. Um, and once again, this is Pieces of Us. And if you feel like you have a story that you would like to share, please reach out to me at piecesofusshow at gmail.com. Or you can definitely contact me on Instagram at piecesofusshow. Do you have any final words or thoughts? Namaste. Nicole noted that the process of forgiveness starts with a seed and it grows slowly. It starts with the small step of just entertaining the thought that you are willing to forgive. Nicole's seed of forgiveness began when she started writing her memoir at 15. Forgiveness is a hard journey because for some reason we tend to equate forgiveness with absolution. When you forgive, it doesn't mean that you weren't hurt. Holding on to the hate and the pain forces you to stay trapped. Forgiveness is an act of releasing yourself from the shackles of trauma that have kept you a prisoner. For Nicole, somewhere north of where I was is a culmination of the forgiveness process. I want to let listeners know that Pieces of Us is taking a holiday hiatus. 
I will be back with brand new episodes January 13th. Until then, I'm Catherine Paquette. Thanks for listening. Stories of yours, stories of mine, all we have to share is time and pieces of us, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us, pieces of you.